Okay, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew sort of section by section, and we're in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. And Jesus has uh, gathered uh, a crowd, or a crowd has gathered following Jesus, um, and this is part of his uh, discourse or his Sermon on the Mount. That's what it, we often refer to this kind of section of Scripture. Uh, and he uh, goes through this uh, kind of comparison between Pharisee righteousness or what the people's experience of religious activity and religious uh, fulfillment or religious faithfulness is or was and his kingdom, the kingdom of one, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kind of kingdom righteousness that came in the rule and reign of the Son of God who came to dwell among us, to live among us, and also to bring his spirit and put his spirit in us. And so uh, Pharisees are not just something that happened at a point in history. The Pharisee righteousness or are, are, um, uh, still exists today. We are still tempted to fix problems with outward solutions. We're, we're still tempted, tempted to make things look a certain way and for ourselves to appear a certain way. When Jesus came to deal with the source of things, he came to bring his rule and reign to our hearts, to remake us, to rebirth us in the spirit so that out of us would flow the deeds or the conduct of God's word and God's kingdom. And so he's offering these comparisons and in this particular section, we're going to pick up uh, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. This is Jesus speaking. He says, You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Say that with me all, just that phrase, do not turn away. Do not turn away. If you hear nothing else, Jesus is calling us, his followers, his people, his redeemed ones, to not turn away. Do not turn away from the people that hurt you. Do not turn away from the offenses that strike. Do not fight or flight. Do not turn away. So we're going to look at this passage, and kind of the first thing is this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What do you think about um, when you kind of first take a look at this, at this passage? Do you, uh, what, what are some things that come to mind? Revenge? Retaliation? Justice? Do you think about the people who've hurt you, and you're like, I'm not doing that. I mean, when you survey the everyday moments and interactions of your life, does it look like this passage of Scripture? 
Why? Why not? Have you, even when you read this, do, do you even feel in your heart like, I don't want my life to look like that? Do you want to be a doormat? Do you want to be a doormat that everyone just walks on and, and squashes and trespasses over and leaves all of their muddy filth from the bottom of, their, of the soles of their feet on you? Do you want to be walked over? Do you look at that passage and say, I don't want that life for myself? Have you, have you experienced that emotion when you read this passage? I don't want my life to look like that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Well, the first phrase when Jesus says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, how many of you want to be under a system of government or a law or the thing that governs your life that is, that is ruled by this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? How many of you think that's a good thing, a positive thing? Nobody? Right, it's interesting. And, and because out of this, this verse, I mean, we, we've, we hear a lot of things. A lot of this, this, this kind of passage has been used um, to um, endorse uh, or, or be, kind of be the foundational passages for scripture uh, or for a, a theology of like national pacifism, the disbanding of military operations, the disarmament of police forces, even the eradication of judicial systems. Um, th- this, uh, this even, and, and many things that kind of fall under the broad category of radical hospitality. Right? Many of those scriptures and those passages come from this, and it's a, it's, it's a thought that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a bad thing, a negative thing, a horrible thing, and that really Christ is offering something entirely different or better or a new set of laws or a new code of conduct or a new way, a new world order, so to speak. It's typified by this quote. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Who said it? Anyone? It wasn't Jesus. Right? This is what our culture tells us over and over and over again until we believe it. Where did that phrase come from? Who gave us an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Who gave that to us as a people? Who is the author of that phrase? The same God who brought you Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at that. That might throw your head for a loop here for a moment, for a minute. So an eye for an eye was part of the Mosaic law, and, and the, it was part of the civil law given to the nation of Israel. Now, the law, when you, hear the, when you read the word the law, um, oftentimes it will refer to, th- to three different things. One is the ceremonial law, which the children of Israel, we went through the ceremonial law to, to cover 
um, ourselves from sin or to, to receive forgiveness from sin in anticipation of God sending his son, the Messiah, when sin would be atoned for. So ceremonial law was how we covered sin until it was atoned for at the cross. The ceremonial law we do not have to abide by anymore. We don't have to make those offerings, those sacrifices and things because Jesus made the offering and the sacrifice that atoned and punished death mortally. That's good news. Ceremonial law did its thing, served its duty, and is done. The moral law, typified by like the Ten Commandments, the moral law is eternal. It's enduring. The Ten Commandments are as valid at the time as they were given as they are today, as they will be for the age and the ages to come and the ages past. It's the moral law. It is the, 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 the recognitions of God's order in the universe. And then there is the civil law. And the civil law was given specifically to the nation of Israel because they weren't a nation yet. They had been in captivity in Egypt for so long, they weren't under any system and government other than the system and government of their oppressors. And so when God brought the people out of, the out of Egypt and into the wilderness, he gave them as a gift a civil law to help them establish law and order in the governance of social interactions amongst a people. And so an eye for an eye is drawn out of that civil code or that civil law. Now this law was given to judges to restrain punishments and control excesses. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, when somebody comes up and punches you in the face, what's your instinct? You hit him back. But how hard? Harder. Because you want to return the offense and then you want to punish them so they never do it again. It's like you plus the amplified angry version of you. Boom. An eye for an eye fixed the cap for settling a matter. It stops the cycle of ever-present escalation. This, then this, then this, then this, then this. And it states that when an offense or a crime is committed, that the settlement of that will be just and equitable to the crime or the offense. One could not exact punitive damages under the Mosaic law. That could be a lesson worth learning for us. You don't get $10 million for heartbreak. I know that's hard, and I'm, I'm not meaning to be calloused. And I'm not even saying that all punitive damages are evil or anything like that. And there are some things that I'm, I am not saying that. I am saying that the principle was supposed to be a good thing, a good and right thing to control the excesses and the escalation and put, be a buffet against the spirit of vengeance and vindication that works in our mortal bodies. The Pharisees turned what was intended to curb vengeance into personal vindication. That's the problem. Because Jesus, when he's saying this, he's not actually saying that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the problem. He's quoting the law. He's challenging the Pharisees and how they use it. Well, like you can take a butcher, a butcher knife and in the hands of a chef, it can do great, wonderful, and marvelous things. And in the hands of an angry and foolish 
person, it can cause death and destruction. The knife isn't the problem. The knife was designed for a purpose. God's civil law, God's law was designed for a purpose. The Pharisees were using it foolishly and angrily. They were misusing what God had given to to be a buffet against vengeance and using it for personal vindication and saying, every offense that's committed, we will exact vengeance and vindication according to every iota of the law. In, in essence, we are going to make sure that personally, each person receives the maximum allowable penalty under the law for every offense. That is not Christian. That is not godly. Jesus' teaching here is not a new set of rules, a code of ethics, or a new law to replace the old law. It is rather an illumination of the Spirit which gave the law, a Spirit which now lives in us, a Spirit that is transforming us into the kind of person from from whom the conduct or the deeds of the law naturally flow. So let's take a look at just this passage in its structure, one, there, it's, it's like a triple cheeseburger. Mm, I love triple cheeseburgers. Actually, I like three meats and two cheese, like in and out. You have a burger, a patty, a cheese, a patty, cheese, and a patty. It keeps it from getting sloppy, and it saves about 80 calories with not having that third piece of cheese on top. And I feel like I'm doing a good dietary choice. It's a three by two. Yeah. So a triple cheeseburger. So there's a bun at the top. That's verse uh, uh, 38 and 39. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. That's, that's the top bun. The bottom bun is verse 42. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And then there are three all beef patties as examples. That is the the illustration in the middle. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Those are the three illustrations. Cheeks, coats, and miles. Cheeks, coats, and miles. We'll take a look at the buns first and then the patties. Oh, man, I'm getting in trouble. You're making me blush again. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. So, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Jesus is not directing this instruction to non-believers, to nations, to groups of nations. It's not a new world order under some humanistic philosophy that can be applied. Because to require Christian conduct from non-Christians is not Christianity. We would, in fact, be saying that a person is capable of producing the fruit of spiritual regeneration without being born again of the Spirit. The gospel teaches that until a person is under grace, they are kept by the law. The law is not the problem. 
the nations of the world and the people of this world, before they are under grace, are kept by God's law. And when we, because God's law illuminates our need for a savior, but it also buffets some of the evil intentions and practices that are most destructive in the earth. And so then when a person comes under grace, then they are under grace. But we cannot expect all the nations and the peoples of the world to be under or to produce the fruits of that grace if they have not been born again of the Spirit. And so they are kept under the law, and this is right, and it gives us firm ground as believers to support law and order in society and between nations by those means. Jesus is addressing the Christian individual and his conduct in personal relationships. He is focusing on our personal reactions to the things that happen to us. If you saw, if you were in this crowd, he's not talking about the doctrines of war or capital punishment, or the Roman Empire, or all those things. He is talking to people who live and occupy the real estate of everyday moments and lives, and things happen to us. Things are done to us. People put their foot in their mouth. People are hurt and they're wounded coming into moments with us, and then they hurt us. People are, are, are compelled by things that we can't see and we don't understand and we don't have the ability to see and understand and they come and they do things to us that hurt. And Jesus is addressing people in those moments in their everyday life and saying, this is where you will receive the kingdom. Not in, in a scholarly sense about some doctrine and theology that, that is for some other life other than mine, but for the life that I am walking in and the life that I am leading. He is asking us to face something much more difficult than the theoretical. He's asking us to face ourselves, the self, our self-interest that we bring in to those moments and those encounters that make up your life and my life. Then look at verse 42, the other bun. Give to him who asks you and turn from who, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. At first, it seems not to fit with resisting evil or turning the other cheek or settling a lawsuit or going a second mile. But really, if you think about Jesus, he's addressing our self-interest. It makes complete sense. Jesus is concerned the whole time about our view of self and our passion for others. Passion not in a delight or a, a nice emotional high about something, but passion as a willingness to suffer for something beyond ourselves. A Christian is willing to die to self so that others can live. A follower of Christ does not turn away. Does not turn away. Jesus is exposing the thing that controls so much of our natural thinking in everyday encounters in our lives, and it's self-interest. The kingdom heart goes beyond restraint from a retaliation, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and it sincerely and deeply considers the plight of the offender's soul. 
Now let's take a look at the examples, the illustrations. The first one is cheeks. Will I turn the other cheek? What does that even mean? Well, to be hit on the face is particularly humiliating, right? When you get hit in the face, it's not like getting hit in the arm or getting hit in the leg because there's a bruise or a mark or something. You are, you are humiliated in front of others by, the, by the, the act and the result and the evidence of that strike. And this could apply as much to verbal insults as physical injury. Now, when you are hit, yes, I just hit myself. When you are hit on the right cheek and you feel the sting, to turn the other cheek is not to say, hit me again, do your worst. To turn the other cheek is to return to a face-to-face posture with the person who hurt you. It is choosing to stay present in proximity to the other person, even remaining in a place of vulnerability to that other person. It is not pushing the injury in the other person's face. It's not boom, and then, see, look at that. That hurts. I want you to look real close. It's turning the other cheek so that even the offense is hidden. Right, Proverbs says to cover an offense, to cover an offense is seeking love. It is to stay present and face to face. And especially and most notably, it is not injuring the other person. He is calling us to disown the spirit of vengeance. Vengeance is not our business. It's his He is the arbiter of justice that is both full of truth and full of grace. We are recipients and receivers of that justice, both eternally, eternally, cosmically, and in the present age. Vengeance is the Lord's. A couple of examples. One, Paul had to deal with this with the Corinthian church. Paul planted the Corinthian church. I mean, he went, there were no followers of Christ. He helped lead people to the Lord. He planted the church. He raised up the leaders. And then he went on to work with other communities and uh, and, and to, to bring the gospel to other areas, other Gentile areas. And he hears about good old fashioned sectarianism. Months, maybe not even years had gone by, and the people he had sown into and brought to the Lord and raised up the leaders and planted the church were already gossiping about him, complaining about him, criticizing him, making fun of his doctrine, making fun of his theology, and they were deciding that they were going to become disciples of Cephas or Peter. They were going to, others were going to become disciples of Apollos. Some people were still loyal to Paul. Other people said, we don't want any of that. We're just disciples of Jesus, and we actually don't even want to associate with you. It was divisive in the community that was there, and Paul hears about it. Right? And the spirit of vengeance, maybe he comes back and he tries to put out or discredit Cephas or Apollos. Or maybe that's the fight response. The flight response is, is, I'm done with you. You guys have taken what I gave with my good intentions and you have squandered it and made it into something it was never intended to be, so I'm done with you. He doesn't do either. In the the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, 
He comes and he says, it is a very small thing to be judged or by, insulted by these people. And that's not a rhetorical or I, an ironic tool of, of writing. He is literally saying, it is a small thing. I'm not so concerned about that. With a right heart, I'm not so concerned about that. And he actually con- condones, he, he blesses the, and um, he encourages them towards right relationship with Jesus for their own sakes. He blesses the watering efforts of Apollos and Cephas. He says, yes, you know, I planted Apollos is watering, Cephas is watering, but it's the Lord who brings the increase. He actually refuses to take offense to what is going on. And he encourages them toward right relationship with Jesus for their own sakes, not for his sake, not to avenge an offense, not to make a point, not to, to make an illustration, not to, not to get back at them, not to correct all their wrongs because he was not comfortable with it. He was looking out for their best interest and their relationship with Christ. He turned the other cheek, and he wrote a second letter. He stayed in relationship with them. How about Jesus? Do you think there was a point in his life and ministry where he was struck on the face? I mean, it's nice if he's teaching us that he would actually go through something that would show us what that looks like. Well, in John... John 18, verses 22 and 23, this is Jesus. He's being interrogated or he's being questioned by the high priests and the officers of the court of the high priests are gathered around and they're calling him and questioning him and testing him and trying to trip him up and get him to say something about what doctrine he was preaching that, would, that they could, that they could uh, you know, destroy his reputation. And it says, and when he had said these things, when Jesus... When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. Let me tell you what that is. He wound up and he slapped him across the face. And the officer says, do you answer the high priest like that? Can you hear the contempt, the vengeance, the offense in the person's voice? Jesus answered him. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Now, at first glance, he seems not to turn the other cheek, at least in terms of how many of us have read it before, to ask for another strike. He does protest. He registers a protest. But the key are the grounds. By what grounds is he making that protest? He does not lose his temper. He does not respond in indignation, even though he had the power and authority to do so, right? Is there any question that he had the power and the authority to take him out right then and show who's boss of the universe? Instead, he registers a protest. And he says, he doesn't even address the personal insult or the, the, the mockery, the, the absolute insanity of the officer's question. He appeals to them calmly, thinking of their interests and the condition of their souls. He, in a sense, asks, he's asking in a question, right? The honoring thing to do is to ask the person a question. 
Do you want to break the very law you have been charged to uphold? Do you want to have this stain of injustice on your account? With this question, he is honoring the officer's position and moral responsibility. He stays face-to-face. He stays present. He stays even still vulnerable to what they might do in the natural, physically. He's not injuring back. He perfectly turns the other cheek and returns to a face-to-face posture with the person doing the offense or the injury. The next example is, do you need my coat too or also? If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him take or let him have your cloak also. This second illustration is about our rights, even our legal rights. Some of us have not been treated well under the law, like our leg- the, the legal system. And I'm going to say, we personally, I personally had to live this out a number of years ago um, at, in my role as a partner in a tech company. And we, the way we structured our agreements, our contracts with our clients is, is that um, if there was wrongdoing or negligence or, or anything like that, the client could not sue us for more than the value of the contract itself. Meaning, if they had paid us $100,000 over three years, they could not sue us for more than $100,000. And that was agreed to in advance, up front. Both parties knew it, accepted it, understood why that was the case, and that was an acceptable or deemed to be a fair condition or term of our working relationship. Now, with one particular customer, um, about four months in, somebody on our team unintentionally did something very, 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 very dumb. And it cost this business about four months of financial data. In fact, all of their company data. And we had a meeting with them right up front. And we talked about even, because when, when stuff goes down, you bring out the, the, uh, the contract to, to see really where the boundaries are. And it was well understood by both parties that they could, that they were owed or they had a right to a certain amount of money that they had paid us up to that point. And legally, that like that, we we could have gone before a judge. We could have like it. it, it there had been we had essentially an ironclad agreement that stated what was going to be legally fair. And when my partner and I talked about it, they uh, we knew that that was not going to restore the relationship. That was not going to make things right, um, even though that what was that was all that was legally required. Um, and so we, um, uh, we did some additional things. He uh, said, you know, we're going we're gonna to send some people over to help you re-put in the data at our expense. And we're going to continue to provide support to your organization as long as you need at no charge until you're past this hurdle. And that's not, there was no conditions attached to it. It wasn't like, well, we're going to do that for you if you won't sue us or anything. It was just, no, um, they, had, they, they had a right to our inner garment, our tunic. But the, the matter in God's eyes, they, they, they needed our coat. 
And yes, that would have left us exposed to further financial risk. It would, it would uh, expose us to the elements of economic forces that we may not have been able to control. And, and just the way Jesus said, right? He said, people, even in that day, had a right to sue you for your tunic, your undergarment. But there was a custom that says, hey, you can't take a man's coat because you know, he'll get frostbite. But a person, there are instances where what's legally right is not adequate. And so we offered our coat. The principle here is that we willingly subordinate our own interests beneath our concern for others. And the last one is miles. May I go with you a second mile? Now, Galilee was under Roman occupation, and the Roman army was in control of Jewish life. Roman officers would commonly interrupt a person during their workday, meaning, uh, let's say you were a fisherman, and you had brought in your catch, uh, and it was early afternoon, and you were bringing your catch from the morning to the market to sell, and you would, uh, like it was a time-sensitive matter. You would go to the market to sell your catch, and then you would trade it for bread and the other things that you might need for your family. This was how you made a living. This is how you provided your family. Well, the soldiers had every right, because they were the governing authorities, to say, Sir, uh, please unload your catch, and you can leave it on the side of the road, or if you have a family member, they can, they can deal with it. Uh, we're in need of your cart. You're going to need to take me and my cohort of three other soldier friends and all of our luggage uh, or our baggage a mile down the road, and then you can return and go about your business. The custom was that you could ask someone to take you up to a mile, and that was, that was sanctioned by the government, the ruling authorities. How many of you think that's fair? How many of you think our tax system is fair? Jesus is speaking to us about that, about our attitude, even when people question him about that very thing. He said, render to Caesars what is Caesars. He did not endorse Caesars' moral authority, his attitude, his conduct, anything. Jesus is addressing our attitude and our resentment to legislation that we deem is unfair, to regulation that we think is onerous, and to taxes that we think are unfair or unjust. The third principle is that we sincerely do what is demanded of us and are willing to go beyond the requirement. This passage is concerned with our natural resentment at the demands of government upon us. You know, sometimes I've heard even Christian business people, entrepreneurs, complain about those in their employment as having no work ethic or sense of duty, and then in the same sentence talk about evading taxes by their own business and, and complaining and complaining and trying to figure out some way of getting out and becoming invisible or untraceable, untraceable and, and sheltering income and assets from the government. I'm saying that this is, you are conducting yourself in the same attitude that you condemn in others. And so how do we apply that as a church, like today? Well, we have neighbors as a church. We moved our church, we moved into a rural area. 
The only sounds you heard in this area before we were here were moos and of horses. And we're allowed people. And that's okay. God made us allowed people. We like to praise. I like John on the bass. I like Dan on the drums. I like Jared singing his heart out until the mic blows up. Like, we're allowed people. The county has given us a conditional use permit that controls how many people we can have at different times, when we can meet, how loud we can be, and all different types of things that over the years, sometimes we have felt this is not fair. Right? We resist against it. And we don't always get the, 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 it's the attitude of our neighbors has, has not always been, we're grateful that you're here. But would you join me in offering a second mile attitude towards our neighbors? You know, if they say, if the conditional use permit says we can't make noise after 10, well, we're not going to make noise after 9. If the conditional use permit says that it's a certain decibel volume at the edge of the property at this point, well, you know what? Yes, I have a decibel meter on my phone and I have gone out and checked and made sure that legally we are not in violation of that. But can I still hear the Will we go a second mile? God will honor the second mile. He is inviting us to the second mile because people that receive a second mile cannot understand it by any human terms. And they will look to the Lord. I don't know how long that takes. I don't know how long the second mile is. But I want to... I have a second mile approach to our neighbors. We are sincerely looking out for the interests of those down the road from us, the people who might be picking up the soldiers at when we're done with our first mile or the generation of those in our church that we're going to hand off the, the church to. We have a, he's inviting us to think about people beyond ourselves and fight our self-interest. So to sum it up, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When Jesus laid down his life, it wasn't just one act on the cross. It wasn't just his atoning death. He laid down his life for us when, at the Incarnation when he left glory and took on our frame. He laid down his life for us during his life in ministry. He laid down his life for his disciples. He laid down his life for his family. He laid down his life for the crowds. He laid down his life for the Gentiles. He laid his life down for the Jews. He laid his life down for the Pharisees. He laid his life down for Pontius Pilate. He laid his life down for the officers of the court. He laid his life down for the officers that came to arrest him. He laid his life down, his rights, his privileges, what was owed to him, and his self-interest. He laid down his life and continued to lay it down in every minute of every day, in every interaction, so that we would know what love is. That's love. And he invites us, 
that we learn and we join him in fellowship in dying to our self-interest, dying to ourself so that others might live, that others might experience the life and the love of Jesus Christ.